Hello and welcome to The Entrepreneurs on Monocle Radio, the show all about inspiring people, innovative companies and fresh ideas in global business. I'm Tom Edwards. In today's programme, we're heading for a country about which it's safe to say many people have strong opinions. And while the United Arab Emirates might make you think of tall towers and seven-star hospitality rather than smart startups, there's an incredible pace of technological advancement there. And it's certainly easy to get great ideas off the ground. People are launching innovative and interesting businesses there, and we're going to meet some of them on today's programme. First, we'll hear how the business landscape has changed there in the past 15 years. You can now have 100% foreign ownership if you open a business. And when I lived there, if you wanted to start a business in the UAE, you had to have majority owned by a local. Then we'll take an aromatic journey to meet the founder of a well-being and fragrance brand. I'm working not just with the aromatic profile of the essential oils, but also the specific components found within those essential oils that are able to elicit a certain response. And we'll sit down with the boss of Emirates Airline to find out what the aviation giant is planning next. Nearly 40% of Dubai's production in the next three or five years power requirements will come from the solar arrays in the desert. That gives us a fighting chance to do all sorts of things with regard to how we go about the ground footprint of the airline. This is The Entrepreneurs with me, Tom Edwards. You're listening to a special edition of The Entrepreneurs. Now, readers of Monocle will be, or certainly should be, familiar with our annual business and startup publication, The Entrepreneurs. I know, good name, right? This year's edition has just hit newsstands and features a focus on the United Arab Emirates. Monocle's team of editors and reporters touch down to find out where the brightest business opportunities lie in the UAE right now. And I'm pleased to say I'm joined by one of those returning editors here in London. It's Chris Lord. Many of our listeners will be familiar, of course, with you, Chris, as our US editor, but they might not know you lived in the UAE for a good few years. And that's my first question, really. How different is it now? Set the scene for us, Chris. What's it like to open a business there now compared with uh, when you were living there a while back? You have to remember when I was originally there, that was, I was much, I was very young at the time in my early 20s when I moved out in 2008. And that was right before the financial crisis. And so, what you saw for, or what I saw for a year, was a place that was very much just emerging as a business city, was also incredibly ambitious, and was also doing quite a lot to get attention. So that was the period when, you know, you had biggest this being built and tallest that and so on, and the first plans starting to emerge of some of the mega projects like the Louvre Abu Dhabi that came down the line. And you also had the kind of oddity of that period, you know, houses in the shape of iPods and all that kind of stuff that was <laughs> that was going on. And so there was this whole process of trying to get attention for a place that, that, you know, frankly, was not very known to a lot of people. Now you flash forward, and I think through that financial crisis period, the UAE really, in many ways, found its footing and as in it learnt some resilience. It wasn't just a boom town that was buoyed up just by oil. There was people who had moved there and had built businesses and stayed the course and saw out the thinner years in the view that there one day things would pick up again. And now, so going back and spending just shy of a month there, I really saw... 
you know, a place that was much revived. And it was just fascinating to see. It had turned a corner, I think, from some of that more extravagance of the early years, uh, earlier years, where now it's a lot more confident with itself. It doesn't need to trumpet this kind of stuff, quite the biggest this and so on. It's not quite as interested in that anymore. And I think there's a lot more people who have stayed the course and therefore built a proper ecosystem where you can go and you can start a business. And I think also in a very real sense, the law has changed for those entrepreneurs who are listening. It is a different landscape. You know, when I lived out there, you couldn't really go bankrupt. There was no real insolvency laws. Now that has changed. Yes, there is still such a thing as going to a debtor's prison of sorts, but it's much more structured in a way where you can take the kind of risks that entrepreneurs expect to take without fear that that might be the final destination. You now work from Monday to Friday, where it used to be Sunday to Thursday. So you're more aligned with markets, which I think is very important. There's little reforms happening to labour laws to bring them more in line with the world. There's a lot less sort of eccentricities, if you will, to some of the laws that exist. And I think probably the most important one for anyone who's listening to this who wants to start a business out there or would consider it, you can now have 100% foreign ownership if you open a business. And when I lived there, if you wanted to start a business in the UAE, you had to have majority owned by a local. That's kind of a big change, I would say. And I should say, Tom, just as a final point, a lot of this has happened in the last four or five years. It's not like it's been 10 years in the making. It really has happened quite quick. And it's brought a certain energy to the place. It feels a lot more confident there, I would say. Chris, obviously, I don't want to give the game away and we encourage our listeners to pick up uh, the entrepreneurs from uh, newsstands or via monocle.com. But maybe give us a couple of examples of some of the things that were really striking this time around. I don't know if that's specific sectors. I know there's a big government-led push to talk about artificial intelligence Mm. and pushing the envelope in terms of tech developments. But what were other kind of sectors that jumped out? Because it's not just about energy and and, and finance. There's much more to it than that. There is. Just in brief on the sort of artificial intelligence point, a field that is very much part of the focus there. And anyone will have seen the headlines in recent weeks and months about the sheer volume of NVIDIA chips that are being bought by the government in Abu Dhabi. They want to make sure they're ahead of the game and they want to make sure that they can maximise this potential of generative AI to the kind of solutions that they want to see. And I think if you take a country like that where you do actually have a relatively small workforce that is very young, that also is building some systems, if you like, of governance from scratch and or systems of transport and so on, AI makes a lot of sense. You can really accelerate a lot of stuff using this, or there's a potential to accelerate this. And so I met with quite a few businesses who had been, I suppose, coaxed out there from Silicon Valley and elsewhere, partly to do with investment, of which G42 is the big government-backed investment arm there that is investing a lot in companies from Silicon Valley, also from Shenzhen, really kind of attracting a lot of talent and, and businesses and startups to move there. But I think there's also a really interesting quality of life play there where they're thinking, you know, why don't we set some new standards about very basic stuff. Why should you have to order a new passport is one example that's given there. Why not create a system where it immediately generates one for you? So there's that kind of stuff, which I think is very interesting. I think the other stuff that's really struck me, the UAE is infamously a place that relies on air freight to keep its food going. So during the pandemic, food stocks around the world were challenged and getting food around. And we still live in an age where supply chains are not perfect. And I think the UAE, what it's trying to do now is say, well, look, we have relied a lot on air freight 41,000 tonnes a day of food is brought into that place. That's a lot. But I think also there's a willingness to use technology and entrepreneurial smarts to get around the fact that you are in a place that 
several months of the year is hellishly hot and also is lacking water. So I went to see, for instance, an amazing farm out in the desert, a company called Pure Harvest Smart Farms, and they have developed a system whereby it's a closed greenhouse, temperature control, but not like a lab setting. It still looks like a traditional greenhouse. But they found a way where 83% of the water that they use can actually be sort of managed so that that leaves with the vegetables. As in you, what you don't use that isn't using the vegetables goes back into the system. It's cleaned, it's filtered, and it can be used again. So it's less water wastage, more productive. I tried some of their produce, amazing stuff. And now restaurants around the UAE are also getting on board with that. You can go and have the beginnings, and it is the beginnings, of a farm-to-table movement in the United Arab Emirates, which I have to say 15 years ago when I first moved out there, would have been fanciful as an idea. Thanks, Chris. That was Monocle's Chris Lord. And you can find out more about Pure Harvest in the latest edition of Monocle's special business and startup publication, The Entrepreneurs, which is out now. This is a special UAE-focused edition of The Entrepreneurs. Now, the country, and particularly Dubai, has become a significant hub for the fragrance industry. Our fragrant correspondent, Carlotta Rabello, was in Dubai. She's here now. Hello, Carlotta. Hi, Tom. Who did you catch up with whilst you were in Dubai? Tell us more. A couple of people. I was uh, really fortunate to write a feature on uh, the rise in the fragrance industry in the country. As you mentioned now, you know, UAE's fragrance market is valued at 913 million US dollars, and that's expected to grow to 1.6 billion. So it is a growing industry and more and more traditional scents and fragrances from the region are being exported elsewhere and actually tapping into the markets of luxury houses in Europe and the Americas and beyond. Now, I spoke to a few brands and one of them is this natural fragrance brand called Appalachian and its founder Michelle Rannick Hicks she's Australian, moved to Dubai a few years ago and then started as a journalist uh, working for Time Out Dubai, travelling around the region and was through that process that she started to understand just how important scent and fragrance really is to tell the story of the UAE and Oman and Jordan and eventually as it happened with many people during the pandemic, she got stuck at home trying to decide what to do embarked on a perfumery course and next thing you know she ended up launching her own fragrance and essential oils brand Appalachian and I was really fortunate to visit her home and lab where she showed me how she distills so many of these essences from the raw ingredients and actually the power of collecting some of these materials yourself as you travel through the region. It sounds like good sense to take a listen. Let's hear more from Michelle Rannick-Hicks. It's split into two sections. One is the operational side, which is laptop and all the things that I need to get day-to-day business done. And then the other side, which is the more interesting side, is my lab. And on this side, I have all the essential oils that I've collected over the years. I'm a bit of a, a hoarder, you might say. I collect beautiful essential oils from all around the world, from artisanal distillers, female-led brands, collectives and cooperatives in countries like Ecuador and Nepal. And a lot of the process in selecting essential oils to use in Appalachian is simply smelling and blending. So I might order one cedar wood from one distiller and then get another one from another and then 
agonize <laughs> and spend hours smelling. <laughs> so also in my lab, you will see a distillation unit, an alembic, a copper alembic, which is has pride of place here because this is how most essential oils are extracted. The oil is extracted via steam distillation. So I have been experimenting with this myself with various locally grown herbs and ingredients and it just helps me understand the process a bit better and become closer to my oils. <laughs> and you will also find other herbs and resins that I've collected over the years, including my pride, my jar of frankincense, which I collected from Hasik, which is an area in Salala in southern Oman where Boswellia sacra grows and that is where you get the best frankincense in my opinion. So I have a jar of that. We also have plenty of agar wood and sandalwood and rare Japanese incenses that I collected when I was in Japan sourcing our incense. So I visited Awaji Island in Japan in April to go and meet with the Koshi which are the fragrance masters of Awaji Island which is where I think 75 or 80% of all Japanese incense is made. So that was uh, an incredible experience. So I brought back a lot of incense with me. So that is here as, as well. And there's also books. I geek out a lot on scent. So every book you can possibly, <laughs> possibly find on scent, exploring aromatherapy, aromacology, incense, the natural world. I read all about it. <laughs> Do you wake up with inspiration of like, oh, maybe I should mix these two or maybe I'm curious about your creative process to be like, oh, maybe this is what I should try. Is it, for lack of a better word, but like as simple as like inspiration and you waking up thinking this is what I might try or is it after a long process of reading said books, uh, doing other research or maybe perhaps it's a blend of both? It is a blend of both, yeah. It's definitely a blend of both. So I'm working not just with the aromatic profile of the essential oils but also the specific components found within those essential oils that that are able to elicit a, a certain response on your nervous system. So I know, for example okay, I'm going to make a, a citrus blend. I want something very citrusy that I was planning. Say, for example, with the Rhythm, which is one of our oils in the Focus series, I knew that that oil had to be very vibrant and uplifting and help people in the middle of the day get a little bit of energy. So I used oils that were very high in limonene citruses like pink grapefruit and yuzu. So I will take those oils based on their aroma, but also based on their therapeutic component. And that's how I start blending. So I just switch my scales on, add drop by drop, increment by increment, blend, sniff, smell, leave it, come back, start again. And I have to take very detailed notes. It's, uh, it's very important to have a formula spreadsheet, which someone who's coming from a journalism background it's a nightmare having to deal with all these spreadsheets <laughs> yeah that was another baptism of fire but that's what i have to do you have to be meticulous with your formulation process i'm curious then for example with with food or with beverages there are often palate cleansers do you have the equivalent for your nose for example well like do you have to just step away after a while because then you just can't make sense anymore absolutely i mean coffee is renowned as the thing that you smell to obliterate your senses and be able to continue smelling but actually it's a long process with the incense in particular 
I was sampling so many different incenses to try to find the right blend for us from um, the factories in Japan. So I would light a stick, smell it, take detailed notes, listen to it, which is what they do in Japan. They listen to the aroma. It's not smelling the aroma, <laughs> which is a whole other story. And then I leave the room and I come back again. I think of how the aroma is lingering in the space, how it's made me feel, what sort of vibe it is. It's, 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 a, it's a very long process. And same with the essential oil blends. These aren't designed to use on your skin, so they're designed to diffuse. So it's a little bit different when you're blending these. You want to create something that smells amazing in the bottle. So when a customer is smelling it from the bottle, it smells great. But when you diffuse, you're mixing it with water and it atomizes into the air and it can have a very different aroma to what it has in the bottle. It's similar, but it's not identical. So there's a lot of testing that, that takes place as well to ensure that the aroma has the throw, as in candle speak, it can project the aroma as well as smell great in the bottle, smell great as a, as a complete product. Do you have a, a favorite product from your own brand? I do have a favorite child. It's the rhythm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I gravitate towards the rhythm because of the yuzu. I'm, I'm a huge fan of yuzu. I love it. And with the incense, it's probably hikari, which is a blend of sandalwood, honey and cinnamon. It's just uh, it's heaven. That was Michelle Rannick-Hicks, the co-founder of Appalachian, talking to Carlotta. And you can find out more about the business by heading to appalachian.co or pick up a copy of the latest issue of The Annual. You're with the entrepreneurs on Monocle Radio. Emirates is a global aviation giant and a symbol of soft power for the UAE. Its vast network, industry-leading products and award-winning service make Emirates a powerful ambassador, connecting the nation to the world. Monocle's Ed Stocker caught up with the president of the airline, Sir Tim Clark, while he was in Dubai. Ed began by asking Sir Tim how much he considers their role in contributing to that UAE nation-building and what being the country's flag carrier means in practice. We weren't charged with that task in the early days. Because we became so successful and partly built on the back of the success of Dubai, don't forget, we realised that there was a crossover between what we were doing and how we were perceived and how Dubai was perceived. So we're very proud of that, but it hasn't been something that we've aspired to do. We haven't been directed by the state to use soft power to... We've just done it because we're good at what we do. Dubai is good at what it does. And taken together, the two have put Dubai on the map. And hopefully that'll continue as we get better in all the things that we're going to do. How much do you think Dubai's growth, which you just mentioned, is down to having Emirates Airlines? Because obviously it's been such a business connector. It's connected this region to the world, both east and west in many ways. Well, I think it's enabled the aspirations of the government. And believe me, I was, I've been here a long time now. and I could see how the government could see what it wanted to do. It needed to assemble the tools of the, the model that it was going to need to get things done. And the aerospace airline community, the airport aviation, was, was critical to that. It's a fundamental pillar, bearing in mind the difficulties of getting to Dubai through other modes. So to make this all work, which is why His Highness the Ruler established the airline in the first place. 
he did a lot of other things. Don't get me wrong, but taken together with all of this, it was it's a huge success story. I I, I look back and I look at the Singapores of the world, the Hong Kongs of the world, and how they all grew, and I see Dubai actually outperforming in many areas better than they did. Because, again, the government was focused. The airline was a critical part. The airlines and the aerospace community, that includes the airports, the ability of the government to understand the criticality of all of this and invest in, as they have done, the airports and airfields here, and make sure that the the airline, they, they really don't get involved in what we do. They are hugely supportive. They're very impressed, I think, with what we have done. And they want to see more of the same going forward. So that's very much part of the magic of Dubai, quite honestly. I don't think in the early days they ever envisaged a carrier being as big as we are today, but or as successful as it has been. And that, of course, helped brand Dubai, no, no question about it. But let's not put it all down to that. You know, if he didn't have a government that was determined to do that, you would, this wouldn't have happened at all. If His Highness the Ruler hadn't set up the airline in the first place, well, where would we be now? So in the end, you've got a government knows what it's doing, knows where it's going, what it wants to do. You talked about all the other bits and pieces like technology and AI. There are lots of other things they're, they're trying to, to excel in, not just to be the leader, because they actually think that during the course of the next 20, 30 years, it'll enhance what Dubai will become. And so far, so good. What do you make of people who say it's, you have an unfair advantage because you have this government largesse, you know, you have this government backer? Obviously, I know all these headlines about subsidies disproved, etc. But some people say, look, workers aren't unionized or Dubai airports open essentially all the time. So you have these things, which I guess, to a certain extent, in your advantage. What do you say to that? Well, I, I, I would say, look... Everybody has an opportunity. If you want to take it, if you want to harness all the bits and pieces that come as part of that opportunity, take it. We are not subsidised by the government. The government is hugely supportive of what we do. They don't give us any money at all, apart from when we were in dire straits during the COVID period, when they stepped up immediately and did what they did. But they rely on us to get the job done. And like multiple other facets of, of the Dubai economy, and to the extent the UAE, each entity is required to do the right thing and get it done. So yes, if we are in a very nice position where we don't have a curfew, we have a 24-7 operation, and people say, well, that's not fair. Well, I'm really sorry for you, but that's the way it is. If we have a government that is hugely involved in what we do in the sense that they understand the criticality of aerospace to the and they want to nurture that whether it be through airfields technology etc and support what we're doing what's wrong with that we would say to your governments go and do the same and so it goes on and here is a model of how an integrated economy in the private and the state sector actually work together and generate enormous amounts of wealth but with a, a government that keeps very close eye on the things but doesn't interdict and then things go badly wrong as you know we, we face in the in the pandemic but the way this is going at the moment the way i see the government's hand on the tiller next 20 or 30 years you ain't seen nothing yet obvious question but you said you were going to retire in 2019 i believe and then the pandemic happened and you stayed what's the plan now is it hard for you to leave this the Emirates baby behind because you know you've been there since the beginning, or you do you have a timeline? Well, nothing lasts forever. So in the end, 
now, yes, you're right. I'm now pushing four years over where I said I was going to go. I'm very pleased I stayed where I, I did what I did because I really wanted to make sure that business was going to be fit for the post-pandemic era, which now it is. We are just refining some major strategies and plans for the future. Hopefully we'll embed those during the course of next year and then anything can happen. So no timeline? There, there is no timeline at the moment, but the important thing is it's not about me. It's about the team that are working with me and they can take it on. So um, I'm hoping that at some point, it's a bit like going solo, I'll be able to step out and fly the aeroplane yourself. All right, we're going to see Sir Tim at the helm. You once been described as having friendly outspokenness. Do you think that's a fair assessment of you? Well, I guess over time, I've yes, I have been, let's say, a little bit vocal on certain issues. But remember this, the airline is a global brand. It's probably the largest global brand that's ever been in civil aviation. We look at the Pan Ams, the BOACs, the TWAs, the British Airways of today, and the way they've cobbled together alliances. So they actually are not in any robust manner present in a lot of the markets that we are. And of course, what happens in those markets, both in socioeconomic side of things, societal issues, political issues, affect what we do. So we've got to look at what's going on down there. Sometimes you might make a comment about where you think the African continent might be going and which way that's going to but it's it's purely done with regard to how this is going to serve the interests or not of the of the product and the the airline we go because we're so ubiquitous internationally now and because of all this affects what we do we're likely to have a few things to say I desperately try and remain as an airline manager but more often than not you do get asked questions which stray from that I try and avoid those because I'm, you know, employed by the government of Dubai and I don't really want to gainsay anything they do. But in the end, you have to say certain things, such as environment. What what about flying to Russia? Well, again, this is a, 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 a UAE, government of Dubai, Abu Dhabi position. I will operate the airline under my boss, Sheikh Ahmed, according to what the state requires us to do. So you just have to go along with that and you'd rather not comment? I don't want to comment on that, no. I, 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 in this particular situation, we, we, we do as we are bid by the, by the state. You mentioned environment, and I do want to quickly, before we finish, ask you about that. You know, I know that you've been testing alternative fuels. I think there was a ground test at the beginning of this year, and at some point there's going to be an air test. How big is this, given how big Emirates is as a a global player, what you do is going to have repercussions for the region and the world. How quickly can you get this test in the air and how long until we can expect, given how pioneering the UAE is, how long till we see a transition towards this? Well, look, you know, we, we, we are working at pace to make the engines take either drop-in fuel, which we already do, or running 100% of that. That's not the issue, actually. Technology will allow us to do that today without, with actually quite, quite minimal changes. It's the actual scale of which you get to SAF and the scalability of what has been talked about today. Sustainable av- aviation fuels driven by biomass feedstock has a, a limit. And they're talking about 10% in 2030. Well, that's 50 million tonnes of today's value. That may not pass muster with a lot of the environmentalists. So as we all say in the industry, give us the SAF and we'll fly the aircraft on SAF. We're not producers of SAF. 
We are embracers of everything that can be done to reduce our footprint as quickly as we can. But I guess the manufacturers need to change as well. The manufacturers are also so caught in the same conundrum. In the upstream build, they'll reduce the, un- the environmental footprint of what they do with regard to going about building airplanes. And, and hey-ho, look what they've done in the past, even without the environmental pressures. When you brought composites and plastics into the design and build of airplanes, the aircraft were much lighter. They required less propulsion in terms of the environmental footprint. It was a very good story, but of course that gets airbrushed. The technology with regard to the alternative fuels is a long road. Let's be clear about that. The transition to a carbon-free, fossil-fuel-free flight driven by green hydrogen and all the other things associated with that and is, is, is going to be a long journey. Until such time as that, we must do our best to do what we can with SAF. I'm not optimistic about the scalability of it, frankly. There's huge opportunity costs of putting crops down, getting biomass, and then you need water, and you, the opportunity costs of what you could do for food, etc. We all know, know those arguments. So we try everything around it to make sure that what we do is, and we talked about AI earlier, employing that in the way we go about flying, maintaining, servicing our aircraft to try and keep that footprint as low as possible going forward. So I think we could, there is a lot of work we can do which will mitigate our footprint, but in the end, 95% of everything we do is fossil fuel. That's the aeroplane burn. So we, we're trying to get that down as best we can, but I, I, I'm not sure that some of the targets we're setting ourselves, although they're hugely aspirational and nice to have, are that achievable. You don't see an electric plane being an option anytime soon? I don't see an electric plane in the long haul, no. I mean, we look... As a kid, you asked me about my childhood, I was flying in little planes with electric motors with batteries underneath. They would fly for about two minutes, okay? Now, I don't see that happening. Yes, you may get a revolution in technology once you get an alternative form of fuel, such as hydrogen. But hydrogen comes with huge complexities. And therefore, it's the calorific power of fossil fuel today, given what we need to do with the fleet. There is nothing that comes near it at the moment. And that's the hard reality of it. So going forward, we're ready and willing to get involved in all this. We have a $200 million cash fund ready to seed people, entities that will come up with some kind of solution. And we're not alone. Uh, a lot of the airline community is saying, well, you know, we'll try our best to fund these people, but we're not oil refiners. We're not power producers as is automotive or anything else. We use power to make our things work. We don't actually provide the power in terms of the the fuel uplift. So how does this work for us in the the future? It's complex, it's hard. And uh, the UAE talk about being a leader again. If you look at some of the work that's gone on, unbelievable, in nearly 40% of Dubai's production in the next three or five years, power requirements will come from the solar arrays in the desert. They've harnessed that. That gives us a fighting chance to do all sorts of things with regard to how we go about the ground footprint of the airline. Adnoc, of course, and Mazda are leading technologies in green hydrogen, carbon capture. They've got the money to do it. And the UAE has probably got the money to be able to work on those things because it has a fossil fuel income. Paradoxically, they've got more chance of improving the pace at which technology brings things to us than other countries have to do who Talk the talk, but when it comes to walking the talk, it's not so much that. And you'll see this. It comes up time and time again. But here's a country that's minded to contribute 
as quickly as possible to the, dare I say, the technological breakthroughs that we might see, but even that's slightly optimistic. But at least they're walking the talk big time. And I think you'll see that during the course of the next 10 or 15 years. Very last question. You fly to about 150 destinations, I believe. How much desire is there to keep pushing that world map, keep extending your routes? We have plans now to considerably expand that network, notwithstanding all the things I've just spoken about, but with far more fuel-efficient aircraft going forward. But the, the network will increase considerably over the next 13 years. 13, okay. Do you have a figure in mind, like a magic number you want to get to? I don't want to actually say that, but you know, we, we have a clear plan going forward. Our fleet purchases, the way we're going to expand that, both in just about every continent on the planet is affected by what we're going to do. That was Sir Tim Clark, the president of Emirates, in conversation with our Ed Stocker. You can find out more, head to emirates.com. And that's all for this special episode of The Entrepreneurs. We'll be back next week. Do look out for a UAE-focused Eureka coming your way this Friday. The programme was produced by Laura Kramer with mixing and editing by Tamsin Howard. Listen again and find out more at monocle.com. That's where, as ever, you can subscribe to Monocle magazine or, of course, pick up your copy of our special business annual, The Entrepreneurs. To contact the team, email Laura. She's on lrk at monocle.com. I'm Tom Edwards. Goodbye, and thanks for listening to The Entrepreneurs.